going to continue our study in Genesis this this evening, so please turn there, Genesis chapter 9. And um, we've spent three weeks talking about the flood judgment, and uh, not because we're tearing apart one verse per week, but because the flood judgment really takes up that that much time in the uh, in the text. And uh, so we want to make sure that we're giving ample time to this judgment that God took very seriously, the sin that was taken very seriously, and also the protection that He provided for Noah and his family. The cause of the flood, according to chapter 6, verse 5, was the fact that God looked down on the people on the earth and saw that their thoughts were only evil continually, or they were only wicked all the time. And so in a sense... God was cleansing the earth of the wickedness, the corruption, the violence that was in it and was providing for Noah and his family a new beginning. But I hope you recognize that the flood did not ultimately wipe out sin. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. I told you chapter 9, but we'll start in 8.21 just to show you. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma And the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the assessment that God makes following the flood is that man's heart is still evil from its youth. That includes Noah and his family. And so while the flood did did damage on the sin in the world, it, it eliminated Uh, the wicked people that remained, certainly it did not wipe out sin completely. No flood judgment could do that. And uh, today we're going to see that this wickedness still does remain even in the people that, uh, particularly Noah, Noah, who was counted as righteous by God, even in him. Let's begin reading in chapter 9, verse 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Chapter 9. Verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. In this uh, wickedness that follows the flood, we're going to see that that uh, evil people are amused by sin, or we call them the wicked. Unrighteous people are amused by sin while the righteous are appalled by sin. 
The righteous are appalled by sin. We see an introduction in verses 18 and 19. These two verses, these first two verses in our passage, help summarize for us the entire passage. Verse 18 begins by pointing out that Ham, at the end of the verse, was the father of Canaan. And this is, uh, this is shown in order to show the events that are about to take place. The events in verses 20 through 29. That, that what Moses is about to talk about is Ham's sin and why Ham and his son Canaan became really the, the parents of wickedness in many ways. Um, you have to remember that as Israel is reading this, they're about to, or hearing this for the first time, they're about to enter the land of Canaan and their question may be something like, where did the Canaanite people come from? And so Moses records this story about Ham, the youngest son of Noah. shows why they're still wicked to this day. One of the reasons that they are wicked, uh, to at least to their day. Then in verse 19, um, Moses gives us a summary of what we're going to see in chapter 10. We're, we'll just briefly overview chapter 10 because it's more of a genealogy. But there are some important verses that I want to point out. It, it, chapter 10 anticipates the scattering of the nations. It shows that uh, through Noah and through Noah's son, all the families of the earth came to being, including the ones that, that still exist existed during the time of the reading, obviously still today as well. We are all descendants of Noah. Um, so basically, all of the people on the earth, specifically Israel, who this was written for, they came from Noah, and by, uh, by association, they also came from Adam, of course. And uh, so verse 19 seems to summarize that in chapter 9. It says, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the, from these the whole earth was populated. So it seems as if what Moses is trying to do is to answer two questions. Number one, where did the Canaanites come from? And number two, where did we all come from? And uh, he's going to answer where the Canaanites come from, came from in, in the last part of chapter 9, verses 20 through 29, specifically uh, 22 through 27. Um, but we begin by seeing the sin of Noah in verses 20 and 21. The sin of Noah. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. There's nothing inherently wrong here. There's nothing wrong with planting uh, a vineyard or doing any farming. Um, we can't say that, that he should have been like Abel, who was a, uh, a shepherd or a, care, uh, a man who cared for animals. But he was uh, like his ancestor Adam or his father Lamech. Both of them were, were uh, farmers. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with him planting a vineyard. He did this when he got off the ark. The problem comes in verse 21. He drank of the wine, that is the wine of the vineyard, and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, this did not happen the day after God made His covenant with Noah. That's what we looked at last week. Remember, God said, uh, Never again will I destroy the earth with a flood, with, with the waters of the flood. Never again will that happen. So, Noah, as he's contemplating this, he starts to figure out how he's going to get his life going again, how he's going to fill up the earth with all these people and so on. And, uh, and the very next day, he gets drunk and, and commits this sin. Now, when we read it like this in kind of a machine gun type style where we have the covenant and then the very next one is, is Noah sinning, 
it seems as if it's very close in time. But you have to understand that verse 20 says that he began farming and planted a vineyard. So it's not as if the vineyard grew up overnight. It would take um, probably a whole season, if not years, for him to get a good harvest. And then in, in addition to that, um, this, uh, these grapes had to be picked and then, uh, and then uh, smashed into juice and then ferment. They had to ferment, and so this could take several weeks, months uh, for that to happen as well. So we're talking probably a couple years after uh, when God made His covenant with Noah, just to give you uh, an understanding of where we're at and the, the timing of all this. Now, what can we say about Noah's sin? Was he aware that that drunkenness was wrong? Perhaps Noah kind of just stumbled upon this new drink and decided, hey, I'll give it a try. And, and what he found out was that it actually inebriated him. It, it caused him to, um, to to not be able to think rightly. It... it um, it, it reduced his cognition and, and his senses and so on. Uh, we, we understand that the effects of drunkenness are bad here, and even in verse 21 it shows us that he uncovered himself inside of his tent. But certainly he must have known the effects of wine by this point. How old is Noah at this point, roughly? He's over 600 years old, right? So if he's over 600 years old, he must have been able to see other people get drunk and saw the the effects of it, even if God had not laid down a specific command, which would come later to Moses, um, that that uh, that um, that there's they're not to be getting drunk. Um, however, although these effects of this drunkenness were pretty detrimental, they would be even worse the next time we have a record of someone getting drunk. And that, of course, was when Lot's daughters got him drunk in in chapter 19 in verse 30 and following. But the point of the story is not to focus in on Noah's sin. Okay, When, When we read it, I hope what you noticed is that that was not the focus of it. The focus is more on Ham, the father of Canaan, and what he did. His response to it. Now, that's not to minimize in any way Noah's drunkenness, but the point is not to highlight Noah's drunkenness. Okay, he did it, but I think his response to it was a a good one. He he was appalled by it, and he was appalled by Ham's sin as well. We see the two responses to sin in verses 22 through 27. And I said that the wicked are amused by sin, the unrighteous are amused by sin, while the righteous are appalled by it. Uh, we see the amusement of the, the wicked in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Again, Ham is referred to as the father of Canaan. We saw this in verse 18 that at the end of the verse it says Ham was the father of Canaan. That's why I say I think the purpose of what of Moses writing here is to show the people of Israel who are going to hear this story being read that Ham really laid the foundation for these wicked Canaanite people uh, of whom they were about to displace. They were about to remove them out of the land of Canaan. And so this would answer the question where they came from. Now, one other thing I think we should notice is that um, is that uh, according to verse 24, Ham was the youngest son. 
Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew that his youngest, what his youngest son had done. Now, when we read a list of Noah's three sons, it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we think Japheth is the youngest, Ham is the middle son. But according to verse 24, Ham is actually the second son. And, uh, or I'm sorry, Ham is actually the youngest son. And then Japheth is the oldest. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. Chapter 10, verse 21. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. Okay, so when, when this genealogy is being listed in chapter 10, we have Shem and his older brother Japheth. So really the order is not Shem, Ham, Japheth. Take Japheth from the bottom, and he's actually the oldest. So it's actually Japheth, Shem, and then Ham. And the reason that's important is because the way that people were often blessed was through the oldest son. The oldest son would often receive the blessing. But here, what we're going to find is that the, the blessing actually goes to Shem. And that Ham is, is cursed. Shem's the second son. He's actually going to receive the blessing as if he were the first son. And so, again, we see, like in the story of Jacob and Esau, we see that God chooses whom He chooses to accomplish His purposes through them. Uh, similar to Abraham, who also was not the oldest in his family, neither was Joseph. Uh, so, Ham was the father of Canaan, according to verse 22. And he was the, as we'll see, because of his sin, he became the true father of Canaan in the sense that Satan is the father of the wicked. That, that uh, Like Jesus said in John 8.44, you are of your father, the devil. In many ways, Ham was the father of the nation of Canaan, the one who opposed God and who was participating in all sorts of wickedness and immorality. Now, what was wrong with what Ham did? Was it wrong for him to see his father naked? Was, was Ham looking on his father in a perverted way? Well, I would suggest to you that there's no support for that, that, that he was looking on his father in a perverted way. There's no support for that anywhere in this passage. Some people have surmised that is exactly what happened, that he was, um, that he was portraying some anti-creation type tendencies, uh, sinfulness, probably a better way to put it. Notice verse, um, verse 25, because clearly there is some sin here. It wasn't just an innocent look. Um, but there is some sin going on here. Verse 25, So he said, that is Noah, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan is the son of whom? The son of Ham, right? Ham is the father of Canaan. So cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. So clearly Noah saw what Ham did as sin. Um but I think the way that we need to classify this sin is not a sin of perversion necessarily. I think um, the sin is more, we could classify it in one word, as dishonor. Dishonor. We know it's dishonorable because of how Moses portrays for us what the right thing was. What would, have the right, what would the right thing be to do? Well, the rest of the passage shows us. It was what, Ham and, what Shem and Japheth did. It is they covered themselves. They, they worked hard to make sure that they didn't see their father's nakedness. They did not dishonor him. They didn't want to disgrace him. And that's exactly what the older brothers did. They actually covered his nakedness. Instead of doing that, Ham saw his father, look at the end of verse 22, 
saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And so on top of him looking on his father in a dishonorable way, he makes fun of his father the way I would take it, that he tells his two brothers, kind of makes sport of what his father had done. It looks at, a, at, at his father in a way that would not bring honor to him when he's in a very weak and uh, obviously sinful state. And that's exactly what Ham had done. So the wicked are amused by sin. And that's why I say, uh, that's why Ham saw his father's nakedness and then he told his brothers. They are amused by it. But the righteous are appalled at sin, verses 23 through 27. The righteous are appalled, or they, they, it disgusts them. Verses 23 to 27. Look at verse 23. Notice the response of Shem and Japheth. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. There are at least two things that Shem and Japheth do in order to guard themselves. One is they, they put a garment over their shoulders, and then it says that they walk backwards towards their father's and later on the verse, it says that they covered their faces or they had their faces turned away. So the two things would be to cover up and to walk in backwards so that their faces are away from their father so that they in no way could dishonor him in that way. I mean, why would they go to so much trouble? What was their motivation? Why were they trying to guard their eyes? And I think, as I've said, um, that they, they were trying not to disgrace their father. Or we could say it positively, they were trying to honor their father. The first news of, of this uh, awful act taking place was not one of, oh, this, this is going to be great, wait till we tell mom or something, or, or wait till I, I tell my wife. It is, how disgraceful. We need to make sure that we cover this up. And so they put the garment over their shoulders so they cannot see, and they walk in backwards in order to honor their father. When Noah comes out of his drunken state, he indicts Ham. He brings an indictment down on him, verses 24 and 25. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall, he shall be to his brothers." Think about where Israel is when they're reading this for the very first time. Hey, where are they? Are they in the land of Canaan yet? No. Moses is the writer. And does Moses make it to the land of Canaan? No. He only is able to see it from a mountain. Moses does not make it. And so if Moses is the writer of this, and he is, then they are not in Canaan yet. So the first time that they hear this read, they have not stepped foot in the promised land. So where are they? They're wandering around somewhere in the wilderness. They could be on the edge of uh, the Jordan River. We're not sure. But at the, very le- at the very least, they're on the edge of the Jordan River. But they're likely just still wandering around in the wilderness. And so God inspires the writing of Moses in such a way that he gives detail to the curse of Ham, that, that it would be on Ham's son Canaan, in order to show the Israelites, get this, the extreme danger of the sin of Canaan's father that God judges sin. And that's the point that Moses was making in recording this story, that that God is very serious about sin, so don't take it lightly. The result will surely be retribution by God. 
And so Noah uh, brings down this curse on Ham's son, Canaan. But uh, he doesn't stop there. Verses 26 and 27, we find that Noah blesses his other two sons, the older two sons, Shem and Japheth. Verse 26 says, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So in both cases, we see that Canaan, the youngest brother, will be a servant to his older brothers. Not because of his position in the family, that he was the youngest, but because of his sin. That, that Because of his curse that's coming upon him, he will serve these older two brothers. That his family line will serve their family lines. These, uh, this curse and, and blessing, I believe, are, are very fascinating in these four verses. Notice the only time that God uses His covenant name. Okay? And the way that you can tell that God is using the covenant name, which in the Hebrew is called Yahweh, or we also call it Jehovah. The way that you can tell is if you look in your, your Bible, look at verse 26, and notice the word Lord, the name Lord, is in all capital letters. Every time you see that in your Old Testament, that is referring to the covenant name of God. That God is making a special covenant with His people. That He is the I Am. That, that he, His promises will not fail. The only time we see that name used in this passage is when He gives Shem a blessing. And this suggests to me that, that Shem is already in a covenant with God. And that it's completely founded in God. That, that it doesn't rest solely on the, the shoulders of Shem and what he would do, but on the covenant of God and what, he would, what God would do. That God would bless Shem as a result of this covenant he was making with him. So, again, verse 26, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. The, uh, in, in verse 24 through 27, Noah shows the difference, I think, between the two seeds that we have been talking about since Genesis chapter 3. You remember what those two seeds are? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And really, we could categorize every single person in human history being a part of those two seeds, being descendants of those two seeds. They're either a seed of the woman, which represents godliness and, and, and the godly line and the seed of the serpent which represents wickedness. And here in verses 24 through 27, we see that Noah seems to separate his children out into these two people groups, these two descendants of these two seeds, doesn't he? That Ham is the descendant of the serpent and it appears as if Shem and Japheth are the, the descendants of the woman that uh, if you know about the, uh, the continuation of this story, you understand that the Israelites came from which one of these sons? They come from Japheth or from Shem? came from Shem, right? So the Shemites would be the, the godly line or the seed of the woman, while uh, the people of Canaan, the wicked people of Canaan, were from, uh, from Ham. And... If you uh, also know uh, a little bit more about how this turns out, you know that the Japhethites 
were blessed through him. That's what it says in verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The reason that the Japhethites would be blessed was because they were part of what God was doing through Shem's descendants. And what we're going to find is that because of Shem's descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise that comes to Abraham, who is a descendant of Shem. Japhethites would, would be the father of the Gentile nations that would come to God. And so in a sense, we have uh, all these nations that come from Japheth being blessed through Shem. So while we don't see Noah repent of his sin or even confess and forsake it clearly in the Scriptures, we do see that he is appalled by it because of this curse that he brings down on him and the blessing that he brings, he gives to his older two sons because of how they they reacted. So I would say that the righteous are appalled or they're they're uh, hateful or disgusted at sin. Then we see Noah's death in verses 28 and 29. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah exited the ark around the 601st year of his life, and he lived another nearly 350 years after that. Uh, and um, or, excuse me, another 300, yeah, 350 years after that. And uh, and he died. And now Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Bible, turns his attention to the records of Noah's sons. And if you remember from the very first time that we looked at Genesis, I mentioned that the the book is broken down based on how we see the the uh, the accounts of many of these early fathers. It begins with the account of creation in chapters 1 through 4. And then it, it has this key phrase that keeps coming up again. It's the phrase that begins chapter 10, verse 1. Look at that with me. Now, these are the records of the generations of. You can find that phrase in chapter 2, talking about the records of the generation of creation. And then chapter 5, verse 1, these are the records of the generation of Adam. And then chapter 6, verse 9, these are the record of the generations of Noah. And then here in chapter 10, verse 1, Noah's sons. And then it goes on in chapter 11, verse 10. Look over there. These are the records of the generations of Shem. And he continues to, to focus in on a specific people group. And so we have, if you think back to the time of Adam, okay, you have all the people of the earth that came from Adam up until the time of the flood. So you have the descendants of Adam. And then we narrow it in to specifically the descendants of Noah. Obviously, those many of the other descendants of Adam died in the flood. But you, now you have the descendants of Noah. And now we want to narrow it in a little bit more, specifically the descendants of Shem, chapter uh, 11, verse 10 and following. And then within Shem's family, who is it that, that this seed is going to come through? Well, we know it's going to come through Abraham, the father of Israel. But... But uh, specifically, we see it in chapter 11, verse 27. Look at, there, look at that verse with me, chapter 11, verse 27. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram. Okay, so he focuses in on Terah. Then he takes a brief interlude, Moses does, and talks about Ishmael in chapter 25, verse 12. And then back to Isaac who is the blessed one, the one that, who, through whom the seed would come. And then he starts in chapter 36, verse 1, and talks about the descendants of Esau, showing his descendants. But he, he, he goes back to Jacob and says, this is actually where the family 
uh, for the seed of the woman is going to continue. And so what we have is if you come to the end of Genesis, okay, and all these people of Israel have come through the line of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, and that, that is their ancestor. What they're seeing now is that God is focusing on a specific people group. How did, all, how did we all come about? Or how did the rest of the world come about? And this is what the, the message of Genesis seems to be doing. And that's why he takes time in chapter 10 and chapter 11 to show these uh, genealogies. He wants to connect the dots for the people of Israel. He wants to say, okay, you all came from Noah. And you know what? So did the Canaanites. All of those wicked people that you're about to displace, they also came from Noah, but they didn't come from Shem's seed like you did. They came from Ham's seed. So, um, so I think that's the purpose of, these, uh, of how Moses is laying out this entire book. Now, it appears from these genealogies in chapter 10 and 11 that that the commandment that God gave to Noah was obeyed. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, and see what God commanded Noah and his sons following their exiting of the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and notice this last part, and fill the earth. What was the main command that God gives to them following the exiting of the ark? It is to be fruitful and multiply have children and allow your children to have children and so on, and fill the earth. Now, what's interesting about chapter 10, if you're reading this for the first time as an Israelite, is that it seems as if they did obey this command. Look at verse 5. Okay, Speaking of the sons of Japheth, verse 5 says, From these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Okay, so it sounds like they're starting to spread out. Look at verse 15. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. Okay, so it sounds like they're obeying. Verse 19. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, which is the Philistine country, as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim and as far as Lasha, these are the sons of Hanum according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It sounds like both Japheth and Ham's descendants are obeying this. Look at verse 30. Now their settlement extended from, this is speaking of Shem's descendants, their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. So when you hear this for the very first time as an Israelite, you're thinking, God commanded, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 10, we see that Japheth's children... Ham's children and Shem's children all seem to be spreading out all over the earth. It seems as if they're obeying God. And that leads to um, the, the genealogy of Shem, of course, leads to Terah, who's the father of Abraham. So it appears that Noah's family obeys God and spreads throughout the whole world. But what we're going to find out next week, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, 
is that God actually had to work among the people to do a providential work through the Tower of Babel in order to scatter them throughout the earth. Otherwise, their intention was to stay intact, to stay unified as a human race. They felt that they could be more powerful and that they could make a better name for themselves that way. And so what Moses is recording is actually... Uh, it's actually a, a little bit misleading in the sense that you're reading it for the first time. It looks like that they, they did extend throughout the whole earth like they were supposed to, but then we read chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and we find that God was the one who actually providentially worked so that they would do that. We'll, we'll talk about that more next week. Let me leave you with three points of application to draw from this passage, specifically um, chapter 9, verses 20 through 29. Number one, no one is exempt from sin, not even righteous Noah. No one is exempt from sin. I entitled the message, Even the Blameless Sin, because Noah is counted as a righteous man by God, and yet he still is guilty of sin. And so that means that each of us are not exempt from sin either. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. It doesn't matter if you're in the prime of your life and you're living the best years of your life. You're, you're in the, uh, the best condition of your life mentally and physically. It doesn't matter if you are an experienced, mature Christian who has been around church for a long time. You are not exempt from sin. You are not exempt from, from being overtaken by sensual sin even. Just because a person is older does not make him purer. I have heard of many people in their old age who have committed gross acts of immorality, and I'm sure you know of people who at one time in their life said, I never would do such a thing. And yet late in their life, they commit these wicked acts of immorality against God. So, my, my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you, is don't let your guard down no matter where you are in your life. If you're in the prime of your life, if you're older and wiser than, than other people, don't let your guard down. It doesn't matter where you are. Because there are always visual and mental and physical sins that are standing right at your doorstep. And if they could, they would have their way with you. They would be your master. But as God told Cain, you need to master it. You need to master that sin that is about to overtake you. You see, the temptation as you get older is to let your guard down, isn't it? It is to think, you know, the conflicts of my life are not the same as they used. I have fought a lot of battles against sin in my past. And those conflicts seem to be letting up a little bit. And I've really kind of paid my dues in a sense with regard to those battles. And if I haven't committed those gross acts of sin to this point in my life, then why would I now? And that is a dangerous way to think. In fact, I believe that is exactly what Satan wants you to think. So, no matter where you are in your life, beware of the fiery darts of the devil. He is looking 
to, to find the weakness in your armor. And he, He's ready to pierce you. Don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. Perhaps for you it's not a sin of, of morality, uh, a sin of immorality that would, uh, that would take you away. Perhaps, perhaps it's something else like a sin of anger. Perhaps you're, you hate that people are changing all around you and that some people have higher expectations for you and, and you don't think that's fair. And as a result, sometimes you, 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 uh, you go off the handle a little bit. And uh, perhaps even it is your parents or your spouse who has unrealistic expectations for you and, and you feel as if you are being mistreated. And so you respond in anger. I don't know what it is, what specific sin it is, but, but what I can tell you is that no one is exempt for sin, is from sin no matter what period of time in your life you are living. And so we need to guard ourselves. We need to keep our guard up. We need to keep fighting. second point of application that I want to draw from this passage is that the lesson that we learned from the flood is not that if we are good like Noah, God will save us too. Okay, This might sound good for a Sunday school lesson. Um, Noah was good, so we should be good too. Noah was saved by God because he was good, so God will save us if we're good too. That's not the lesson we learned from the flood. The lesson that we learned from the flood is that God saves people because of His grace, not because of anything else. Not because, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because of anything that we have done so that we cannot boast. It's according to His mercy that He saved us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And, and the reason I know that that's not the point of the flood and that's not the point of the ark is because here we see that Noah still needs God's grace. You see, believers didn't just need God's grace at the point of salvation. They are in continual need of God's grace. And that is the same for you and me. The only reason God saved you the only reason that God saved me was not because He saw some potential in me. Wow, I could really make that into a, a great piece of art. No, He did it because of His grace. You were His enemy. You hated God. You, you were opposed to Him. You were deserving of His wrath, His condemnation. But God chose you out of His grace. And when you sin, you are in continual need of His grace. You, you haven't been changed to perfection nor have I. And the third point that I want to draw from this passage is that we should be ashamed of sin. We should be appalled at sin. Whether it be ours or someone else's, we should not take pleasure in thinking about sin. We should not mock or make fun of other people's sins. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9 says, Fools mock sin. Sin is not funny. Okay, When people do wicked things, it's not funny. It's not something that we should take pleasure in, even if we're not participating in the actual sin. As I said this morning, we need to take our sin very seriously because God does. Recognize at the same time that God has covered our sin with, His, with the blood of His Savior, of our Savior, of His Son. And so the response should be, 
that we should praise God because of the grace that He gives to us despite us, despite our sin. That God pours out His grace. And that should result in a great, overwhelming joy. It says, I didn't deserve any of this grace that I'm receiving. These mercies that come to me new every morning, I don't deserve them. I deserve your wrath. And so when we take our sin seriously, it, it, it gives way to a heart that is filled with joy because of the greatness of our God and the grace that He pours out on us. Aren't you thankful for the grace that God has poured out on you despite your sin before you were saved and the sin after you were saved? And that grace will continue all the way until the end. Let's pray and praise God for His grace. Father, Your mercies are new every morning and Your faithfulness is real to us because we have seen it, we have experienced it, we have heard about it in other people's lives, we have read about it in Your Word, we have seen it in in this church. And so we praise You for Your grace that You did not call us out of this world because we were perfect or because we were a shiny crystal that You could just really uh, polish up a little bit and use for Your glory, but instead we were a an ugly uh, piece of garbage before You. We were a piece of refuse that deserved Your condemnation. We hated You. We were at enmity. We were at war with You. We would have been happy to follow our sin all the way to destruction. And even as we were, we would be destroyed, we would have been shaking our fist at You thinking that You were unfair and we would have continued on in our sin, even in our destruction. And yet for some reason, You, like You did with Noah, called us out because of Your mercy. Because of Your good pleasure, You chose us by Your grace. We did nothing to earn it. Even the faith that we have comes from You. Our response was to repent and believe and even that comes from You. We can't take credit for it. So because of that, we praise You for Your grace. And we want to follow You in a way that would honor You. And so we pray that You would give us help that our church as a whole would take sin seriously. That we would not tolerate it, participate in unrepentant sin for sure. That we would not take pleasure in sin. That we would not be amused by it like Ham was but that we would be appalled by it, disgusted by it. We'd look back on the sin that we do and and really be filled with shame. And we pray that You would help us to see our sin for what it is. Not to minimize it, but also not to to, um, make it the source of our depression. That, That we recognize that as Paul says in Romans 8, there is there not therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, for that reason, we can take great joy in our sin. In the sense, like the songwriter writes, Oh, the blissful thought that our sin was taken not in part but the whole, and it was nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. We praise You for Your grace continue to pour it upon us despite our wickedness and our turning from You at times. 
May we take our sins seriously and love You more and more each day, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.